0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Smiling Through the Apocalypse, Esquire in the 60 traces the life of legendary Esquire magazine editor Harold Hayes. 25 years after his father's passing, Hayes's son, Tom, takes the viewer on a journey to understand how his father's magazine became a galvanizing force in American culture. and the voice of an era. the film is a compelling story of challenge, triumph and defeat, painting an explicit portrait of an era through a man who cultivated an extraordinary group of writers, photographers and artists, providing a vivid context for nothing less than the rebirth of American Aesthetics. Featuring interviews with Tom Wolfe, Gay Talese, Robert Benton, Peter Bogdanovich, Nora Ephron, Gore Vidal, Hugh Hefner, and many, many more. We are joined today by the director of Smiling Through the Apocalypse, Esquire in the 60s. That would be Tom Hayes. Tom, welcome to Film School.
1: Thanks, Mike. Um, It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Um, A wonderful film, um, and I... um, Remember a lot of what the the film covers in this uh, in uh, Smiling Through the Apocalypse, um, and the, the tremendous um, well, just initially the tremendous visual impact that you, when you saw Esquire on the newsstands, um, it was such a was oftentimes such a jarring image. Um, that you wanted to know what was inside, and then, of course, you had this amazing array of people involved with the magazine. Um, but before we get into all of that, I wanted to ask you sort of what was, uh, is there something in specific that prompted you to embark on this journey of, uh, you know, really about your father and and uh, decision to move forward in doing a documentary on him?
1: Well, there was actually three things that Um, got me on the road. Uh, The first was really the passing of my mother in 2007, and I had done a tribute to her that was um, kind of a slideshow to music um, that that is on YouTube and has been there since. Uh, It's it's a great place to actually park a tribute to someone who's passed, Mm -hmm. and that was probably one of the more meaningful things I've ever done. And it just seemed fitting that I would do something um, for my father along those lines, since my background really has been in film and TV production, uh, and I had the tools and 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 possibility to do it. So that was one reason. Uh, the second was in 2007, Vanity Fair published a 19-page article paying tribute to my father uh, it was called the esquire de- decade uh written by frank de and it just it struck me that you know you get 19 pages about someone who's been dead for 18 years there must be something something to that um and so i was so impressed that um well, i went after a lot of the people who had posed for the group photo to see if that, i could really start interviewing them mm-hmm. for a film and uh and then the third reason was i there had never really been a, a tombstone uh or a bar- you know the burial that i did was a um uh, taking his ashes to east africa and flying by in a in a helicopter and spreading them over the uh, wildebeest migration so there was never never anything uh done that you know from the family side that uh, one could really point to as um as a permanent tombstone. So, you know, all of these things got me on the road mm-hmm. and, um, and that's what What happened.
0: what was the what was um what what was your entry point? Where did you start when you were trying to unpack all of the this history of your father was it with specifically with your father was it about Esquire initi- I mean, where where did the, sort of the, the start point for you in, in putting this together?
1: Well, there, there was always I was always wrestling to figure out whether this was a story about uh, my father, a story about Esquire, a story about my father at Esquire, a story about me uh, and my father, or me and Esquire. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you know, shuffling the cards, and and uh, you know, it really didn't sort of finally take um, focus until a lot of the material was was put down, and and uh, you know you put something together and then you step away from it and then you come back and say, uh-uh, that doesn't work, let's try it this way. Right. But the entry point, I think, was really um, figuring out who was going to still be around, I mean, who was going to be uh, uh, available available to me where I was in New York City uh, easily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oddly, I, my first reach to Tom Wolfe, I thought that was the, you know, uh, obvious first stop. But, uh ironically it actually took me 2 years to get that interview because he was so involved with them uh, the writing of his book Back to Blood and so it was hard to get him away from that but finally I got there but the first interview actually turned out to be Robert Frank who actually nobody gets an interview with uh he's you know the, the photographer and they had been uh paying tribute to him at the Metropolitan Museum I was a huge sign Robert Frank out front and but you know he he took my call, and he said, well, maybe, you know, and uh, it was kind of a weird story, but we finally we finally got in front of him, and I actually had, I didn't have a clue of what to ask him, and the whole thing kind of turned around, because he's also a documentary filmmaker, and he started interviewing me, um, <laughs> well, almost more than I was interviewing him, uh-huh. but, um, you know, that's that was the very first interview, and I so, got my feet wet there, but...
0: Uh, Well, well, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with uh, Tom Hayes, the director of the new film, uh, new documentary film, uh, Smiling Through the Apocalypse, Esquire in the 60s. And for those of you, magazines, by the way, there was a whole thing with magazines way back in the (laughs) the 60s and 70s. This is truly one of, uh, if not the premier um, cultural touchstone magazine. I I think you could argue in some ways uh, for the sort of counterculture to have been Rolling Stone, but uh the esquire in terms of sort of just literary um heft people who were uh, the new so-called new journalism this was really uh the the publication that you look to for that um and by the way uh uh tom will be here in town he's here in town uh for um Q&As at the music hall theater which is where it's opening uh, tonight. The lonely musical. Lendly, you yeah. Know, yeah. In uh, it's it's really to me it's Beverly Hills. It says Los Angeles, but it's right on on Wilshire there, so it's in that sort of
1: near Doheny.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's near. Yeah. It's near. Uh, it's L.A. Beverly Hills adjacent, whatever you want to call. It, but it's right there. It's a great theater. It's a great place to go see uh, a film. You're there tonight for the seven thirty screening, and also tomorrow night for the seven thirty screening. So Friday and Saturday night,
1: and, then and it, Sunday afternoon for the four. Uh, at the time, for something
0: 4.50. Uh, f- four yeah. 4.50 yeah. screening on Sunday. Um, so, just going back to your, your childhood, I mean, wh- how what was the age range? He was the editor, uh, uh, Harold Hayes was the editor of uh, Esquire from 63 to 73. How old were you when he started?
1: Uh, well, he became, uh, he was working at Esquire um, as a junior editor. Yeah, right. Um, right. He started in 1956, mm-hmm. and uh, Became editor in chief in 1963, so I was maybe six okay. uh, when he actually got the title. And I, you know, that was the first issue that he could claim as editor in chief was the Sonny Liston wearing a Santa Claus hat right. uh, issue, <laughs> right. a Christmas issue, and um, which created you know, a,
0: a huge controversy. Which created a huge controversy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was it, it just such a jarring image. There was no cover lines. It was just this you know, huge black Santa Claus uh, in a time where race was, racial strife was, you know, (laughs) he just didn't do that.
0: Yeah. Well, did you have, Um, at what point in your life did you have uh, sort of an understanding of what your father was doing, and was it long after that that you began to sort of have a context for the world he was operating in? Was that...
1: Well you know I it, I was just um, a kid growing up and Esquire magazine was just a magazine that came home once a month and they were interesting graphics to look at certainly not anything I could read that I would really be interested in uh, or absorb I mean I just was more tuned into mad magazine and uh, right. but you know there were certain residuals that you know did sort of fall fall to the side that I got interested in and and one of those things was jazz I mean I, my father was such a big jazz fanatic that um, you know I immediately started you know rifling through his record collection and uh, became a Fats Waller fan at the tender age of 10 <laughs> um, which you know nobody was doing at 10 <laughs> so yeah. and but for, uh, and, you know it, 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 I think what struck me probably was some of the parties that he would have and you know I wouldn't really understand um why these few people were any more different than than other people. Um, you know, there were, I guess, a couple of times when someone like Albert Brooks would come to dinner, who was mm. just extraordinarily funny. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know what who Albert Brooks would become, but my father just thought, thought he was the funniest thing on earth. And that's where Albert Brooks first published um, something called School for Comedians, and oh my uh, God. probably I... one of the very first things he did, yeah. even before uh, the Great American Dream Machine, which I think he was part of. But um, well, what I was... guess you know that certain personalities that that would you know reoccur. But it, it, it was just like a fireman bringing home a colleague. It, it, it was nothing. Different,
0: yeah. Well, what what was it about your father? I, I, let's back up because I feel like we have it. I've given sort of short shrift to what happened at Esquire here, but I do want to ask you about what you believe your father's this sort of uh, laser like ability to hone in on writers and and their their value and understanding them and being able to identify these. Very, very good writing, uh, the very good writing in the writers who, who wrote it. But I want to just sort of back up. But let's give Esquire its due. It's sort of the context of the times, the 63 to 73 period. Obviously, a lot of social and political tor- uh, t- turmoil in the country, lots of things going on. And in the midst of all of this, there's sort of this new journalism beginning to take hold. Talk to us a little bit about sort of that context in that era.
1: Well, you know, I think a lot of this was fueled by um a very fast-moving culture and the uh, the lead time that Esquire had which was, you know, 3 to 5 months before anything that was, you know, breaking news could actually hit the newsstand. So they had the he my father had to overcome these obstacles of of how to keep the magazine fresh and interesting well after things had happened. So rather than just, you know, Reporting on things as they happen as they do now, and with you know the internet having a ten second lead time, he had to figure out ways to make uh, the subjects more compelling as a read and I think new journalism came out of that where you know there was a uh, a novelistic approach to reporting on non fictional events, so that you were reading yeah. uh, not only in certain technical styles of of what was being covered, but also from, from, from the edge, from a different angle, from mm. something that nobody had ever thought of about that particular situation. Um, so I think that that was really what caused a lot of uh, new journal- journalism. But uh, new journalism was a label that came later. Um, and while there, the new journalists were, were doing new journalism, nobody was said, nobody had identified it mm-hmm. as anything uh, with a label until Tom Wolfe called it uh, or identified the com- components of new journalism. Yeah. I think he attributes Pete Hamill as to be one of the first people who came up with that term. My father refused to actually ever accept that new journalism was anything new. Um, the you know novelistic approach to non-fictional events uh, was covered well before mm-hmm. with Hemingway and Mark Twain and. Charles Dickens. I mean, it's so he he didn't really subscribe to uh, the idea of new journalism. It was literary journalism that just carried on. And as Gore Vidal in my interview uh, said, uh, it was just journalism gone mad. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, journalism. Well, I would say journalism with an attitude, in a sense, and and uh, and also more emphasis on the why than it's more than the who, what, when, where. To me, it was there was it, there was an, an attempt to a, explain, um, the, you know, the personalities involved, the, the 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 context of the events as 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 much as it, as at, at least as much as it was to say this is what happened in the Democratic Party convention in 1968 by the by the numbers. This was I mean, i thinking about Mailer's piece um, that he wrote
1: um uh, Superman comes to the super yeah, mart uh, or market, depending on who you're asking. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and and but I mean about the Democratic convention, about the Kennedy mystique, um, about sort of framing it in a way to get to give you a much greater depth of understanding of the people involved. And of course, uh, I would be remiss if I uh, didn't talk about Gay Talese's, uh, ar- um, uh article on uh, Frank, Frank Sinatra, Sinatra as a cold, which uh, it, which is identified and I mean it sounds a little bit. The hyperbole of it all, but it's sometimes identified as one of the, the greatest, if not the greatest, article in in the history of American uh, magazine publishing. Um,
1: well, and it all just sort of happened as an accident, really. Right. And um, uh, you know, I think my father saw that, that the accident was really uh, worth pursuing, so he he permitted um, an extensive amount of research along the sidelines, it, and. It, yeah. uh, he didn't say, come home, this thing isn't working out. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> yeah. It didn't hurt that this happened in New York City, too, as well, which was just alive with the, this kind of sense of change in the air. And He was in the right place at the right time, but i am go back to my question, which is, what was it about him, your father? We haven't really talked about his, sort of his personality and his, his upbringing that w- gave him this ability to understand the world around him in such a interesting way
1: well i think it, you know he had a, a very religious upbringing um and that restriction from uh all the things that were going on outside the church brought some kind of a an awe an outsider's awe to anything that was he was he was confronted with mm-hmm. and um that's all being an outsider i think is an important component to being a good magazine editor as all editors might agree mm-hmm. and uh so he he came to new york with this bright-eyed oh my goodness yeah. kind of uh this is what's going on and now let's have some fun with it and um and he had fun with almost everything it was just it was an amazing amount of um uh enthusiasm yeah. for Whatever anybody wanted to try and and pursue, and so he permitted and protected the writers uh, to to go out and explore and find things from alternate angles and encourage them to go in certain directions. And I, I think you know, coming from the south, coming into New York uh, when he did was certainly the right time in the right place, yeah. and he had the right job. So it was yeah, a, a yeah. cosmic force that that really caused Esquire to, uh, to blossom when it did. There,
0: yeah. There's so much in this film. Where we're really just barely scratching the surface. Sort of his upbringing, the people around him, his history going back to Wake Forest. Uh, this, this sort, of, all of these things. And and I, I and again, I think you, you you touched on something that I think is important to point out. Esquire always had a, a just a wonderful sense of humor. A wonderful! It's sort of a wry sense of humor generally, but a satiric even. Yeah, satiric. It was. There was a lot of things. It it definitely did not talk down to the audience. It 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 elevated. I. It just it elevated everything about the magazine, the graphics, the photographs. We didn't even mention Diane Arbus. It
1: suggests it was a it was, it was a huge amount of suggestion. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. It was just there was so many things, uh, and uh, you know, we're I'm sort of imbuing this one magazine with a lot of different things. But it it's in this environment, a media environment that we live in today. It's 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 hard to. I mean, it's it, it was a different time, and there were journals like this. There were news programs that you watched and you and you took a lot of information the country took a lot of information and moved forward on these assumptions that we don't necessarily uh, do that as much uh, in today's environment that way but um um I want to. By the way, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Tom Hayes, uh, the director of "Smiling Through the Apocalypse," Esquire in the '60s. You're going to be at the Music Hall Three, uh, Lemley's Music Hall Three, in Los Angeles tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at the seven thirty screenings, and then on Sunday at the four fifty screening. That's uh, this weekend. Check it out. The suits really care about opening weekends, so go go see this. Um, what do you miss? What do you miss about your father? What was the thing that, uh, just from a personal perspective, that when you look back on on him and the impact he had on you?
1: Well, you know, it, it took me a really long time um, to get over the loss of him, and you know, I think I I, I miss more the the father than than the editor, because mm-hmm. um, so I really didn't know him as an editor. Mm-hmm and you know he would come home and be a father so it the editorial side of all of this is kind of is is pretty fresh for me mm-hmm. um in in making this film and to have all these people t- you know talk about your dad in a way that uh you never heard before mm-hmm. was was very uh stimulating um but you know he was a man who would listen to you and he would also have reflections on you know any problem that would be I would as a growing young man be confronted with and um I think that's what I miss most uh in, in him being gone 25 years now it's I'm I'm still missing that yeah. and I think that's probably what a lot of people who are close to their fathers miss uh regardless of what of oh, yeah. what achievements they've made in life
0: Well well Thomas then what has this has this film has it stirred up the the facts of you him not being in your life this or has it have you come to reconcile what what is the sort of what has been the impact I, of making this I still this
1: cry um at the end mm-hmm. yeah okay <laughs> after having you know made this myself um which means editing it myself right. and having watched it you know probably 9000 times <laughs> um yeah. it's still difficult at the end yeah so um he,
0: well, as an outsider as someone who just uh, you know learned the the depth of his skills and his as a and, and to some extent getting to know him as a person he he just seems like a, he was a remarkable person on a lot of different levels and uh, i understand <laughs> I understand how you yeah that but
1: way. um it also just gives me great pleasure to share um what i what I was able to uncover and and fortunately before. Some of them um, passed. I yeah. mean, I got Nora Ephron, I guess, two years before she passed. And,
0: Gore's um, gone.
1: And uh, Gore Vidal yeah. also, which uh, yeah. was a real treat. I mean, I had no idea what I was walking into in, in either of those interviews. Um, I thought Gore Vidal surely wouldn't be talking about his dispute with William Buckley, but, you know, he went into great detail. Yeah. and um so I wasn't able to actually include every detail about that one particular chapter, which was a huge uh, yeah. event in my father's editorial.
0: Well, he was yeah, able to but... get a lot of that out in the in the recent documentary about him, the Gore Vidal documentary. So yeah. <laughs> he covered that pretty well. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful film, uh, Tom. This is uh, terrific. I really, um, for me, having lived through uh, this era. Uh, reminds me of you know the level of just for me the level of discourse. If you were in if you were looking at, and reading the right journals in terms of um, the the platforms that they were providing for people with very disparate points of view, um, it's hard to find that um, in in a single place anymore. And uh, was, people
1: are just too safe. They don't they yeah. don't dare to we provoke go- it. Yeah. As as they did then, which had you know less possibility to provoke really right. right
0: well we 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 tend now um to go to the places that reinforce what we think we already know and 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 it was not that was not esquire right thank you, thank you so much for being a part of film school um, again, the film is uh, smiling through the apocalypse esquire in the sixties and the Director and all around, you did a lot of different things on this film. You identified being the editor uh, and uh, it's writer, a, editor, yeah.
1: producer, director, you, narrator. There you, and narrator. That's and, yes, and narrator and sound mixer. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: well, a terrific job. Uh, see it to go to the uh, people. Check check it out. The music, the Lemley Music Hall in Los Angeles. Uh, Tom will be there tonight for the seven thirty screenings, as well as tomorrow night, and then on Sunday at four fifty uh, for the screening there for a Q and A. Thank you so much for being a part of Film School, Tom. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.